Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. Each week, we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we talk to the authors of those books. And today, I'm very pleased to say that we have Daniel Jonah Goldhagen on the show, and we'll be talking about his uh, provocative and interesting and compelling new book, The Devil That Never Dies, The Rise and Threat of Global Anti-Semitism. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. It's terrific. Maybe you could kick off the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up relevant to the book in a time that is unusual in Jewish history, unusual in both time and place, which is in Newton, Massachusetts, a place in the 1960s and 70s that was almost devoid of anti-Semitism, which very few Jews historically can say. And so I had a very typical American suburban childhood. Uh, got interested in academic stuff. My father was a professor, and we lived in Germany when I was a child. He was doing research on neo-Nazis and Nazis both. And so that uh, piqued my interest in these subjects, and it began an academic career that started at Harvard and continued there, uh, in which I investigated first the perpetrators of the Holocaust, producing a book called Hitler's Willing Executioners, Ordinary Germans in the Holocaust, which uh, reconfigured how we understood both the perpetrators and the perpetration in general of the Holocaust, uh, specifically focusing on ordinary Germans and their uh, willing participation in the slaughter of Jews. And then uh, after that, I, as at that time a professor at Harvard, continued to work in this area, wrote a second book, uh, which was less a uh, social scientific investigation as the first book was and more a work of moral philosophical investigation called A Moral Reckoning, The Role of the Catholic Church in the Holocaust and Its Unfulfilled Duty of Repair, which is really a book about what an institution, or that institution could be a country, it happened to be the Catholic Church, should do when it recognizes that it has contributed to great transgressions, great crimes, great wrongs. How does it make repair? And I wrote this book because it became clear to me that there was really very little on repair aside from monetary reparations. And the subject of repair, which is very important for religions, for for individuals uh, to perform, and this is true of many religions, not just Christianity, um, was a subject that had not been tackled, at least certainly not adequately, in my view, for institutions. Uh, After that, I expanded uh, my investigation into the causes of genocide and wrote a general study of genocide called Worse Than War, Genocide, Eliminationism, and the Ongoing Assault Against Humanity, uh, which was a general social scientific investigation or social theoretical investigation, actually, on the nature of genocide and mass killing and why it's actually worse than war. And uh, I argued in the book that eliminationism is a general, is the master category and genocide just a specific instance of it, uh, the worst, most horrifying instance of it where people are being slaughtered, whereby perpetrators, from political leaders down to people on the ground, decide that it's important to eliminate groups whom they hate or want to get rid of for one reason or another and act upon it. So it investigated the nature of eliminationism and genocide and was quite different from the first two books in that it also included a long policy chapter. After all, uh, the reason that we want to understand genocide or eliminationism ultimately is because you want to save people's lives. And so that was what the book was focused on. And then after having finished that, I came back to a subject I've been dealing with for much of my life and certainly treated both in uh, Hitler's wing executioners and trying to explain how the perpetrators came to view Jews in a way that led them to conclude that Jews must be killed, and also in A Moral Reckoning, the book on the Catholic Church and Moral Repair, which is anti-Semitism. And I took up this book, this topic, which turned into The Devil That Never Dies, uh, because uh, it was it had become clear to me that anti-Semitism had, was both on the rise and had become transformed in uh, of new form itself that's quite different from what we've seen before, and that though many people had been writing about it and groping around, and I too had been, uh, 
it too, I thought, could use a, a concerted focus in an attempt to try to explain what its real nature is now. And that ended up producing, after several years of work, uh, The Devil That Never Dies. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a remarkable book, and I hope that people read it. I want to begin our discussion of it by talking, going back to something you said about uh, growing up in um, Newton, Massachusetts. I grew up in, uh, I, I think we're about the same age, and I grew up in Wichita, Kansas. And, you know, I never encountered any anti-Semitism there. And it's not as if there weren't Jews, because my best friend was a guy named um, um, Adam Cohen. And I grew up around the corner from Temple Emanuel. I learned about anti-Semitism in college, <laughs> believe it or not. So let's talk a little bit about America. It's really it's sort of an exception in your study. There's there's something exceptional about the Jewish experience in America that I think nicely sets off what is happening everywhere else. So could you talk a little bit about that? The Amer- Americans, and this includes American Jews, who are much more attentive to anti-Semitism in general than non-Jews are, quite understandably. Uh, Americans are not sufficiently aware about the rise of anti-Semitism around the world, in Europe, in the Middle East, which people know about, uh, and even in the developing world where there are really no Jews. And they're not aware of the growing problem to large measure because the United States remains the exception to this rise. And in fact, anti-Semitism has been declining in the United States from what was, to begin with, a lower level than you found in other comparable countries. And the reason that anti-Semitism started at a low level, and when I say started, let's say in the post-war period or certainly in the 1960s, um, is, has a lot to do with the nature of American society, its pluralism, uh, its acceptance of people as members of the national community if they're citizens of the country, which is something which is unusual, if not really singular, in this country, for any large country, that is. Jews have always been seen as part of the American landscape. It's not to say that there hasn't been anti-Semitism. In fact, there has, and there's been quite virulent anti-Semitism at times. Uh, But it was so tame in comparison to what you found in Europe, that, and even tame within profoundly anti-Semitic institutions such as the Catholic Church, so that uh, a pope in the latter part of the 19th century declared American Catholicism uh, a heresy because of the pluralism and tolerance, not just of Jews, but in general of the go along and get along attitude that the church had towards the rest of, towards other Christian denominations, Jews, and what have you. American society has always demanded, and for all its imperfections, and I, I, no one should misunderstand me to be saying that there hasn't been profound, of course, profound discrimination against people of sub Saharan Afri- African descent, blacks, African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, which which began with slavery and continued to Jim Crow and just grotesque treatment by whites uh, of uh, these people who should have been honored from the beginning as Americans. Uh, so there have been profound prejudices, but nevertheless, the society is also more pluralistic and more tolerant of many different minorities, and that includes Jews than European societies have, for example. And so, American Jews have for long been accepted as Jewish Americans, not American Jews, mm-hmm. Jewish Americans, a locution which, a hyphenated locution, which is common in our society, but which you, which you will not find existing in European societies, for example. The idea that, that they are Jewish Germans or Jewish French <laughs> or Jewish, I mean, it even sounds funny. Now, it does you know, sound you're funny. Yeah. Because, because they're, they're seen as Jews. Um, to the extent that they, their Jewish identity is put forward, they are Jews mm-hmm. and not not members of the national community. That's not to say they're not citizens. They're accepted as citizens, but that they're really fully seen as Germans, French, Brits, and so on and so forth is simply not the case. And, of course, there are exceptions to everything I say here. There are some, many people who accept them, but by and large, it's not the case. And so, with the opening up, with the, with the real opening up of American society to... With, because of the 1960s, with the various revolutions, 1960s, and the breaking down of barriers... Anti-Semitism, which is, and I imagine we'll talk about this, but I'll just throw it in right now, which is an absurd set of views. I mean, you know, when you encounter these views, you just think this is just nuts. How do people believe this stuff? But anti-Semitism was really banished from the public sphere of American society and became completely intolerable in polite society, that is any kind of public polite society, and it declined even more than even to lower levels than it had been in 1960s, to the point where in this country, anti-Semitism is, you know, roughly at 
half or even less the level of European countries. Um, and it's clear that, and it's not part, and this is absolutely critical, it's not part of the public sphere, part of the public discourse of American society in the way that it is in European countries. And this is not even to talk about the Middle East and, and other Islamic countries. Um, back to Europe, where anti-Semitism, where anti-Semitism focused on Israel, uh, or focused on Jews behind the scene predations in different countries, particularly in the United States, is a commonplace of the public discourse. And what this means, and it's very critical, is that without the validation that prejudices find in the public sphere, and particularly if it's not, the validation is not given by opinion leaders, political leaders, religious leaders, and so on in public, it is very hard for people to maintain these prejudices, or, or put it this way, it, it becomes harder for people to maintain these prejudices, and they tend to atrophy, even though they may be transmitted, they are transmitted from parent to child within communities. Um, but they're not reinforced, they're not spread in public, and so on. And because it's been absent from the American public sphere, that is, anti-Semitism has been absent for all this time, you quite understandably find that the degree, the extent, and intensity of anti-Semitism has also been declining in this country in the way that is not matched by Europe, where it's been accelerating in the last two decades, the, time, the era of global anti-Semitism, which is what my book is mainly about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, just to understrike a couple of points. One is, and I remember this quite vividly, when I first read about something, a 19th century concept of polite anti-Semitism, and I just didn't understand what that could possibly be, because anti-Semitism is impolite. And of course, what it means is that there is this kind of undercurrent that... Um, sort of continues the tradition of anti-Semitism, that it's really all right to be somewhat anti-Semitic, whereas in the, United, in the context of the United States, it's just, it's impossible. There's, it's, just not, it's just not permitted at all. And then you mentioned this point about self-identification. Again, I spent a lot of time in Russia, and I would talk to um, people that I viewed as Russians, and I would, you know, we would talk about who they were, and they, they would say, where, where are you from? Marshall, where are you from? And I'd say, well, I'm from America. And they'd say, well, where are you from, really? Well, I'm really from America. No, I mean, really, what are you? I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm American. And they say, well, we're Jewish. Actually, I'm a Jew. And instead of saying something like, I'm Russian. And this, this baffled me, quite honestly. I, I didn't really have uh, concepts to understand this. And, and I guess what I'm driving at here, and I'm sorry for going on like this, but I really think that the exceptionalism of America blinds people to what actual uh, anti-Semitism is and how much of it there is. Right, and and you know, you said you grew up in an anti-Semitic free environment. Yeah. And I did too, but you, but that didn't mean I didn't hear these kind of inter-ethnic jokes that were common and still presumably are among teenagers and and in American yeah. society. The jokes about Irish being drunkards and Italians being cowardly and Jews being cheap uh -huh. and this kind of thing. And of course, one heard these kinds of things, and these are the kinds of ethnic stereotypes that are not very profound. They may bespeak profound, more profound prejudice, but in, on their own, they're not very profound and are part of the complex landscape, particularly of teenage life yeah. um, in the United States. But it's very different from the demonizing and dehumanizing views that you find commonly held and commonly articulated in most of the rest of the world, mm -hmm. uh, which hold Jews to be historically, and it's different today, they don't exactly match what people said historically in today, but in medieval times, Jews poisoning wells. I mean, just think about this. You think the Jews are poisoning wells. Why would Jews be poisoning wells? But this was, you know, everybody had to drink from the wells. And why would they want to harm their neighbors? Um, well, the answer in part was, was because they were, they were in league with the devil or minions of the devil or sometimes even thought of as devils themselves. I mean, this is a serious thing. They were, it was an article of faith in medieval Christian Europe that Jews were somehow working with, in, working with or themselves were devils. That is, they, a Christian would look upon a Jew, a, a being who looked like a human being, and find out the person's a Jew or recognized by his or her dress that he or she was Jewish, and actually think that there was an agent of the devil there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and many believe that they actually had concealed horns and tails. Mm -hmm. This is the, the extent, the fantastical character of medieval anti-Semitism, and it's one of the things that distinguishes anti-Semitism from other kinds of prejudice, uh, which also can be profound and the hatreds can be intense, but which rarely 
rise to the fantastical levels that anti-Semitism does. I mean, just think. You think a whole group of people are agents of the devil or in league with the devil mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or yeah. devils themselves. I mean, what do, think of the, how profound the conceptual distortions have to be of reality for you to look upon these people and think devil. <laughs> yeah, no. um, and so this, this, had a, this had a modern analog in... Under, uh, during the Nazi period, and in Europe in general during this period, but particularly during the Nazi period, where the Jews were considered to be a biological race, that is, their blood, or what we would say today, their genes, were qu- qualitatively, fundamentally, foundationally different from non-Jews, and that these, this blood of theirs programmed them to try to subjugate and destroy other races, and, and therefore humanity. Mm-hmm. And so a, a German, and again, there were exceptions, but uh, Germans would look upon Jews, who otherwise might look like ordinary people, and actually see a race of secular devils. Mm-hmm. And with, with powerful, with, with enormous powers and malevolent intent that had no bounds, and therefore a threat to the well-being, and indeed the lives of Germans and, and of non-Germans as well, who needed to be exterminated. And this is why so many ordinary Germans set out willingly set out willingly to to kill Jews and killed them even when they knew they had a choice not to do so, which mm-hmm. is what I showed in my first book. Mm-hmm. Um, again, think of how nutty this is and think of how outlandish this is compared to the other prejudices that people are familiar with, uh, whether it's a prejudice against another class of people, another religious group, another ethnic group. Think of the prejudice in our society against, let's say, Hispanics, which can be quite serious and and can lead to, and does lead to discriminatory action and so on. But does anybody look at Hispanics and think this is a race apart and they need to be exterminated mm-hmm. or these are devils in human form and therefore need to be ghettoized or banished or mm-hmm. exterminated and so on? Um, so, and, and we find that this fantastical quality of anti-Semitism that sets it apart from other prejudices um, has uh, contemporary analogs as well in its new form of global anti-Semitism. Uh, and uh, they include the notion that Jews are controlling the major power of the world, the United States, pulling the strings, controlling its policy, and so on and so forth, that Jews are so powerful and are, are responsible for the financial uh, meltdown of 2008 and so on, that in the Muslim world, that Jews are seeking to destroy Islam. I mean... This is, again, just nutty stuff that is fervently believed. And this is something that is hard for Americans who are quite practical in these matters, and reasonably so, generally. It's quite difficult for Americans to understand uh, how uh, such out-of-this-world uh, such out-of-this-world beliefs can be held to, such crazy things can be held to by so many people, on the one hand, and even though they're crazy, have, which nobody would otherwise adhere to, it can lead the same people to, take, to want to take and then to take radical and profoundly harmful action against the target group. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are kind of things you would just laugh off of. These are nuts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you would say. If, if we said analogous things for other groups, you'd say, this is just nuts. Mm-hmm. People believe this are fringe elements. But these beliefs at the core of many public cultures and of, of the beliefs of many, many people, of hundreds of millions of people, and they are quite articulate and open about their desire to act upon it. So even though the beliefs are crazy, they're not crazy to the people who believe them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I, think crazy, I don't mean literally crazy, but I mean in a figurative sense. They're not crazy to the people who believe them. They're actually, they form their reality. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they're the basis for political action and social action and even for violence. Yeah, and I think this is really the takeaway of the book that, uh, that Americans might not otherwise understand. And that is that anti-Semitism is a kind of, um, it's a kind of foundational element in many national cultures that it just simply won't go away. No matter how irrational it is, it's always there as a resource to be drawn on by somebody. And it is passed from, you know, from one generation to another, sometimes in different forms. And you mentioned three forms of anti-Semitism in the book, and perhaps we should talk about that, or three eras of anti-Semitism, but it's always there. So why don't we just lay that out really quickly so people understand it. You talk about these three eras, the first being the Christian era, and then the second being, well, you just go ahead and tell me. Okay. Um, The first era of anti-Semitism was the long religious or Christian and Muslim era once Islam came to be. Uh, 
which uh, demonized Jews in a variety of ways, but most profoundly for Christianity in, in making the claim that all Jews, and this is in the Christian Bible, commonly called the New Testament, that all Jews are forever guilty, enters into generational guilt for the death of Jesus. Um, the most profoundly prejudicial canard of all time. And it became an article of faith uh, that, that Jews are hostile to Christianity, and indeed, if you accept the logic of Christian thought at the time, that Jews killed Jesus and did so gladly. They, they accepted in the New Testament, they accepted the, the guilt of, for his death upon themselves. Uh, you, the logic is, well, if they're willing to kill the Son of God, uh, what evil are they not capable of? And what evil would they not continue to contemplate, including the Jews that live around me today? And so this is why Jews became so demonized and why they eventually would seem to be in league with the devil and why they were in Christian Europe at various times, ghettoized. This is how the term ghetto came to be, mm-hmm. when Jews were ghettoized. Uh, banished from virtually from most European areas and countries at one time or another, that is expelled, forced to, uh, eliminated by forcing them to leave their home, and also killed on a fairly large-scale and frequent and repeated basis over the course of centuries, um, to the point that, there, that during uh, medieval, early modern times, uh, a good part, of the, good part of the Jews of Germany were either expelled or killed by uh, their neighbors. And, and so this profoundly religiously-based anti-Semitism was the heritage of medieval Europe, and an analogous, though not as intense, anti-Semitism was the heritage of uh, the Quranic uh, tradition where, in which Jews are deemed to be the enemies of Muhammad, having tried to poison him, having killed the prophets. It's said in the Quran that they're, they're children, that Jews are the children of pigs and apes, a profoundly dehumanizing notion. And, and so there was this parallel uh, anti-Semitism, which was clearly clearly derived from the Christian animus towards Jews, um, but it was never as intense as it was in Christianity, because it was not as central to the Muslim tradition. Jews in the, the New Testament are the, uh, are the provide the fulcrum for the, the, the Jesus story uh, and its drama, and it's not the same in the Quran. But nevertheless, when the modern period began, there was this profoundly profoundly towards Jews, a religious one. But as religion ceased to hold ceased to hold sway over European culture, as it once had with the Enlightenment and the changes of the 19th century, the industrialization and the emergence of modernity in a form that is more recognizable, uh, the animus stayed there, but it took on a new form. And this is a critical aspect of anti-Semitism. It morphs into forms that are, are in keeping with the temper of the times, the ide- ide- ideological or ideational and political notions of the time, and it did so in the 19th century, where it took on, uh, a, where it took on a social Darwinian cast, seeing Jews as a race instead of as a religious group that had the, both the power and the drive in their competition with other races to dominate them and ultimately to subjugate and destroy at least a good part of them. And this culminated in Nazi anti-Semitism with the, the logic acted upon, the logic of such beliefs, which is that the only way to protect Germans and the rest of humanity was to slaughter Jews. And it, it, I should say quickly that it wasn't just Germans who killed Jews, but it was they found willing helpers in many other European countries because the animus was pan-European. So, of course, there were people in Europe who resisted this as well. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, with the defeat of Nazism, uh, anti-Semitism went into hibernation because the American colossus essentially conquered at least the western part of Europe and it instituted a new dispensation, and everybody came to see the horrors of the Holocaust for what they were. And so there was a period of quiescence of anti-Semitism, where it went underground or got submerged, um, and, and also did decline to some great extent because it was not part of the public cultures of Europe at the time, and we've already discussed in the United States how it declined, uh, until the end of the Cold War, whereby everything got reshuffled, uh, the entire 
political landscape of the world and the cultural and social landscape, and all taboos fell by the wayside. And you suddenly saw a reemergence of anti-Semitism in Freudian terms, a return of the repressed, and uh, fueled now by an intensive hatred of Jews and a profound demonological anti-Semitism that had been both percolating underneath the surface but also was quite open in Arab and Islamic countries, uh, so that anti-Semitism burst to the fore in the 1990s and in the 2000s, and again became transformed into its current global, its current form, which which uh, can be called global anti-Semitism. Now, what makes global anti-Semitism different from the previous forms are several things. So the first thing, the first thing is that it's everywhere in the world. This has something to do with digital technology, but not just because of digital technology. In the past, there was a Anti-Semitism was localized, more or less, to Christian Europe, and then it expanded outward with Christian Europe, center to the periphery, and in, differently, in, in different in form in the Muslim world. Now, anti-Semitism can be found everywhere, not just in Europe, not just in the Middle East or in the Islamic world, but in Latin America, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Asia. And it can be found in everywhere in the world in enormous numbers. I mean, it's really, just, it's really just shocking that people in countries where there are absolutely no Jews and have never been Jews are, have profoundly unfavorable views of Jews because they've been exposed to the, what is now a worldwide public discourse about Jews, which is dominated by anti-Semites. And so you have in Brazil, where there's a minuscule Jewish, Jewish community, uh, you, you have 50% of people being anti-Semitic. This is determined by surveys. Uh, in Nigeria, sub-Saharan Africa, where there have never been any number of Jews at all, I mean, there are a handful of Jews there, 40-odd uh, uh, percent of the people are anti-Semitic. In China, 55% of the people are anti-Semitic. Japan, in the 40s. In India, 30-odd percent of the people are anti-Semitic. When you total up the numbers, you have billion and a half, two billion people just in the countries that have been surveyed, and many countries have not been surveyed who are anti-Semitic uh, in the developing world. And when you move to Europe, where we have much greater uh, and more detailed information, surveys are done on a regular basis, and there's, a lot, and there's also many qualitative studies, the numbers of anti-Semites is just amazing. Here is a continent where Jews were slaughtered not just by Germans again, but by many other people as well who helped them all over. So it was shown not that long ago historically that Jews are utterly powerless, were only victims, should only by anybody, by any person with a heart be, find sympathy and indeed be pitied for being hounded and brutalized and murdered and then having to try to resurrect their individual lives and their communal lives, uh, that is, those who survived this, this unparalleled intercontinental, or sorry, this unparalleled transcontinental onslaught, in this continent, instead of this kind of sympathy for the victims, there is a profound anti-Semitism that holds these powerless people to be having enormous power and enormous malevolence. And so uh, different survey questions, and we can get into more detail if you'd like, show that about half the Europe people of the EU, so about 250 million people, uh, hold profoundly anti-Semitic views of Jews, calling them to be powerful, holding them to be dangerous, holding them to be a threat to the well-being of others. Um, and they have profoundly demonological views of Israel, the, the country which is the political home of Jews and, and non-Jews as well, but mainly of Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you have this global anti-Semitism that has these two features that are unparalleled. One, it's found everywhere. And two, the vast, vast numbers of people anti-Semites. And I'll just throw in here that it's also found everywhere because of digital technology, the internet and the satellite television, where with a click or turn of the station, you can be exposed in an instant to anti-Semitic discourse and find yourself in a world of anti-Semitism that presents you every kind, you know, I exaggerate, I, I speak hyper, only slightly hyperbolically, where every kind of charge and prejudice against the people that you can practically imagine is made against Jews and presented often in a very seemingly sober and credible way so that the innocent, including children in particular, can easily be dragged into this. If you type in Jew 
into your browser, Bing, Google, whichever one you want, one of the top sites that comes up, sometimes it's number two, is a site called Jewwatch, which has, which is a, an emporium of anti-Semitic accusations, uh, conspiracies, defamations of all kind, organized by category with, they claim, who knows how many, 1.5 billion pages of material. Now, that it comes up second, think of what that means. And we, and this is, again, how in Europe, not just Americans, but others are to anti-Semitism. Imagine typing in a word such as, I don't know, Italians or Irish or blacks or Hispanics into, into Google or Bing and having the second site coming up be, be a site that is, that is prejudiced beyond anything that you could cook up on your own if you weren't already exposed to this. I mean, people would just be aghast, and yet this is just a commonplace among anti-Semites and for anti-Semitism and the things that Jews have to live with and, and, and that seduce and, and embolden, both seduce and embolden non-Jews, uh, and even some Jews, they're Jewish anti, they're Jews or anti-Semites too, but, but who, that seduce and embolden non-Jews uh, into both believing and in spreading and uh, these hateful views of a, a people that is wholly innocent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I noticed what you're talking about here. I want to ask a question that, um, that you've probably uh, gotten before, and I'm sure you expect it, and I think that our listeners probably expect it. What role did the formation of Israel play in the rise of this global uh, anti-Semitism? Um, anti-Semitism should be understood, the contemporary anti-Semitism, global anti-Semitism, should be understood to be not rooted in the Middle East conflict or the Arab-Israeli conflict mm-hmm. and so on. There's no doubt that the, that the establishment of the state of Israel helped to, or powerfully, not just helped to, but really powerfully activated the anti-Semitism that was part of the Quranic or Islamic tradition. Um, so that what was a relatively minor chord in the lives of Muslim societies became a major chord and then became obsessive. Um, and so you have, in the surveys that we know of, in the surveys we have of, of uh, Arab countries, uh, you have just astonishing numbers of people who are anti-Semitic. 93, 95, 97% of people of a country, of different countries. And, you know, these are just, just off-the-charts numbers for prejudices. And, and, and the public discourse of these countries are just replete with the most demonological, hateful, and indeed openly murderous verbal anti-Semitism uh, that you can think of. So there's no doubt that, it, that the establishment of Israel has fueled anti-Semitism there, but it, there's also enormous evidence that it is not what is at the root of anti-Semitism and the images of Jews in general, both, both in the Muslim world and particularly outside of the Muslim world. And so we have surveys of European countries which ask standard, kind of, standard questions have nothing to do with Israel, which is, do you think that Jews have too much power in business? Nothing to do with Israel. Fifty percent of the people. All the, the uh, I'm not giving you exact numbers here, but mm-hmm, the numbers are all roughly about half the population, forty mm-hmm. to fifty percent. Fifty percent of Europeans say Jews have too much power in business. Now you have to stop and think: What could this mean to them? In many of these countries, the Jews are infinitesimal as a part of the business community, let alone the country. Less than one percent, less than half of one percent, and so on and so forth. What does it mean that they're too powerful in business in Switzerland, a, a powerful, with a powerful business community, which also has quite a bad reputation for its own shadiness? How, why are they saying Jews are too powerful in business? Why, second, are, I mean, how, how can they actually believe such a thing? What does it mean? Why do they, second, do they actually see the businessmen who happen to be Jewish as being Jews, who are probably, who are in all, overwhelmingly probability doing what businessmen do everywhere, which is pursue profit, run their businesses to, to, to make money, and so on. And so in that sense, they're no different from non-Jewish businesses. But why this is Jews? Why is this aspect of their identity focused on itself? This is in itself as a hallmark of anti-Semitism. Third, what does it mean that Jews have too much power? 
I mean, what, what form does that power take, and what do they do with it? If you say a group has too much power, then obviously you think they are going to do something bad with it. Otherwise, you wouldn't say they have too much of mm-hmm. it. And so just with this question, we see a whole complex of underlying beliefs that single and I, that, that see businessmen who have to be Jewish as Jews, that even though they are clearly a tiny part of the business community, they have two, they, they're they loom large in the imagination of the anti-Semites, which is 50% of the population, and that they're deemed threatening. How? What is the evidence for this? There's absolutely none. And so this is a classical anti-Semitic charge, and there are others that have nothing to do with Israel. <laughs> Jews care only about their own kind, nothing to do with Israel. Again, large numbers of Europeans, about half the, 40 to 50% of Europeans hold that. Um, all the Jews talk too much about the Holocaust. Well, my God, what, uh, this is called secondary anti-Semitism, blaming Jews for talking about the, uh, the cataclysmic, cataclysmic moment in their history. Jews have too much power in, in international financial markets, which is really a charge about Jews in the United States. Again, 40 to 50% of the people, and so on and so on. So it is true that they focus much of their eye on Israel, but it's also true that they talk about Jews that the questions tap dimensions of anti-Semitism have nothing to do with Israel, and furthermore, that you can easily show that Israel's actions itself do not affect the underlying degree of animus, the extent of prejudice that exists in Europe and in other countries as well, towards Jews specifically, not which is distinct from Israel or Israelis in particular. Mm-hmm. And so, take... Operation Cast led the 2008-2009 uh, incursion into Gaza by Israel, which was perhaps the most vociferously and uniformly condemned Israeli policy of the last couple of decades. Uh, it, it led to an upsurge in attacks upon Jews and, uh, around the world, and including Europe. And even though it was so condemned, it did not budge the anti-Semitic, the incidence of anti- underlying anti-Semitism and we have surveys taken right before and right after, in 2008 and 2009, uh, which the underlying numbers of anti-Semitism went up a point, percentage point here, down a percentage point there, stayed there, but it stayed constant. If Israel's actions were the cause of the, of the underlying and profound animus against Jews in Europe, you would have seen an enormous spike in anti-Semitism there, but it didn't budge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and furthermore, I'll just throw in that the time of this great upsurge of anti-Semitism, of this global anti-Semitism and taking its new form occurred in the 1990s at the time of the most at the most optimistic time about the settlement of the Middle East conflict during the height of the Oslo process when things seemed to be getting better. So where Israel was seen much more favorably and its actions were applauded by a good part of the world, including in Europe. And so it, it doesn't make sense, it simply doesn't make sense to say that Israel's actions are the, are the root cause of this anti-Semitism. There's no doubt that, that Israel's actions are brought in, Israel's conduct, the real or alleged conduct of Israel. And of course, one can be very critical of many Israeli policies. There's no, there's no problem uh, expressing such criticism. But there can be no doubt that Israel's real or alleged transgressions are brought into the anti-Semitic litany and that the fires directed at Israel, because Israel is, a, is the symbol an actual locus of power of Jews. I mean, for the first time historically, Jews, since biblical times, Jews actually have power. They have a country, which is a local, a regional superpower, with a, militarily, and is a vibrant democracy, and is doing very well economically, and is a beacon in many ways uh, for others, but is also, because it has this power, is something that drives anti-Semites crazy, in a sense, because they, there's nothing that so upsets people who are prejudiced against other people is to contemplate that those people have power, and this is particularly true of anti-Semites uh, regarding Jews. Mm-hmm. And so Israel is broadly, and also Israel is a legitimate way to express anti-Semitism, anti-Israelism, as it's called, or anti-Zionism, as it used to be called, still is sometimes anti-Zionism, uh, is, but a more, uh, is but a legitimized uh, form of uh, of anti-Semitic expression, and you can say things about Israel that you can't say about openly and publicly about the Jews among you, and so uh, that is what anti-Semites choose to do, is to focus obsessively uh, and in a completely unprincipled and dishonest manner on Israel's conduct 
uh, and the, the obsessiveness, the dishonesty, the unprincipled way in which they seem to apply principles only to Israel, uh, principles of moral and other kinds, moral principles and other kinds of uh, strictures of conduct, uh, just show the bad faith of the accusations against Israel and that it's really a displaced form of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember in the Soviet Union they used to make a distinction, I don't know who they is, I think they is the party in some posters that I saw, uh, between Zionism uh, and anti-Semitism, and they would always claim that they were uh, anti-Zionist, and uh, usually there was some sort of graphic that showed Israel and there's a snake or something like that, And uh, but they were not anti-Semitic. Is it possible to be uh, anti-Zionist or, or anti-Israel or critical of Israel and, and not be uh, anti-Semitic? I mean, I, that's not a naive question, I think, because I, I really don't know how to talk about these things in a kind of, and I hate to use this expression, politically correct way. I, I don't want to seem anti-Semitic, but there are things Israelis do I don't particularly like. Uh, I'm generally a friend of Israel, but you know, how, how does one deal with this, this distinction? Um, well, first we, have to, first we need to say that uh, the distinction, though, of, uh, of, course, of course one can be critical of Israel, and I too am critical of many of, much of what Israel has done. I, for long, had thought that Israel should, for long, meaning since I was a teenager, uh, been of the view that Israel should just pull out of the West Bank and Gaza and mm-hmm. and give up the territories and if they have to put up a wall and defend itself like a normal, like a so-called normal country would, even if they don't live with, in a normal in, uh, neighborhood or environment. Um, of course, one can be critical of Israel, and of course, one can be very critical of Israel not being anti-Semite. Uh, but the reality is that that the distinction between uh, being anti-Israeli or whatever exactly that means and being anti-Semitic is uh, more theoretical than than real, and most and it's pretty clear that most people who are anti-Israel and what does it mean to be anti-Israel? Um, it doesn't mean being critical of policies. I mean, you can be very critical. I don't know exactly what your politics are without being anti-Israel. That you're against the country. It's <laughs> a good point. I mean, who says I'm anti-Britain? I'm anti-Germany. I mean, anyone who calls for the destruction yeah. of Israel for its elimination, whether through the the, the code word of one-state solution yeah. or through its destruction, which of course. Arab political leaders and religious leaders and ordinary people on the street call for its destruction and annihilation on a, on a, sometimes a literal and often just a figural day, daily basis. Mm-hmm. They was calling for the elimination of a country, and uh, it's, a, it's obviously a prejudiced person, right. there's no, and not there's no, against that country, but against its people. Yeah, the, and, right. and, and no, no, let me let me just quickly add: people should know that Israel is one of the oldest unbroken democracies in the world. Mm-hmm. Longer than Germany, longer than France, longer than almost all the countries in the world is an unbroken democracy. Yeah. Yeah. That it was a stat, that it's one of the oldest countries in the world uh, as recognized by the United Nations. And so the the notion and that even with all of its all of all of the conflict it's been in with all the existential pressure it's been under all the wars of, of survival that it's had to fight, and not every war has been a war of survival, but a number of them have, that Israel has maintained its democracy, it's never been threatened, even if, even if the Arab citizens are not fully first-class citizens of Israel, they are citizens of Israel, they get to vote, they, it, is, it is not hard to argue that the, safe, that the, that the safest place to be for, um, for a Muslim or an Arab in the Middle East is as a citizen of Israel. Um, that anybody who's calling for the destruction of this country, for whether whether through so-called negotiation or peaceful means of one-state solution or through annihilation, it's just clearly an anti-Semite. So it is not. There is no such thing as anti-Israelism that is not anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And that's quite different being critical of Israel. When and there are clear criteria for what constitutes anti-Semitism, and they can be applied. To to judge whether criticism of Israel is within those bounds or without those bounds, or not, um, and and they include whether you apply principles, whether you apply principles that you're using to judge a country or person across the board fairly to other countries or people as well, mm-hmm. um, or whether you're selective in your application of principles. They include whether you take your negative views, your hostile views of a person. 
uh, of a group and you, uh, and first of all, if they are of the group in general, and second, if you then meet a person who's a member of that group and you, ju- and you assume, and you're, you assume that those negative views apply to him or her. That's what exactly what prejudice is. Mm-hmm. Are you obsessively uh, focused on one country or one group or one people, which most anti-people or so-called anti-Israel are, including people in Human Rights Watch, including people in, in, in the international human rights community in general, Amnesty International, and at the UN. I mean, the, the number of resolutions against Israel compared to that of by any measure, far more murderous, far worse regimes, including the Sudan, which has been conducting genocide in Darfur for the last decade or so, the number of resolutions against Israel is just off the chart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so these are some of the hallmarks of, anti, of prejudice and of anti-Semitism and of anti-Israelism when you actually uh, apply them. And finally, the unwillingness to to have one's erroneous views corrected. For, for example, in Europe, and this just tells you, I mean, so you have Europeans who are, you know, ha- roughly half of them admit to profoundly anti-Semitic views when asked questions just about Jews. Then you ask them, uh, you ask them whether Israel is conducting a war of extermination against the Palestinian people. And the answer is that 55% of Europeans say yes. And this is a commonplace of the European public sphere and media and from politicians and so on. Um, and now, whatever, again, whatever you think of Israel's policies, you, the, the facts are the facts, which is in the last uh, dozen years or so, uh, Israel has killed about 6,000 Palestinians, uh, a big number. Palestinians have killed about 1,000 Israelis, that is, Jews of Israel. And, but during this time, Palestinians have the highest birth rate in the world. The population, until Israel gave up Gaza in 2008 uh, or 2006, their population um, uh, doubled under Israeli occupation. And so by no measure that is not fantastical, that is not divorced from reality, can you say that Israel is conducting a war of extermination against Palestinians? And yet this is a complex European society. You can tell Europeans again and again it's not true, give them the numbers, and they continue to maintain this. This is just out-and-out prejudice. It's part of anti-Israelism. It clearly emanates from anti-Semitism itself, because the same people who are saying this are also also demonstrate those as the anti-Semitic in studies in which they're constantly interchanging the word Jew and talking about domestic Jews for the word Israeli. And to put a fine point on this, we need nothing more than to listen to one of the superstars, at one point the most popular leader in the Arab world, the superstars of the anti-Israeli, anti-Israelism that courses through uh, Middle Eastern countries, which is Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah. And he said um, that... It is not, he wants to make clear that it's not Israel and Israelis whom he most fundamentally hates, but Jews themselves. And this is a direct quote. If we search the entire world for a person more cowardly, despicable, weak, and feeble in psyche, mind, ideology, and religion, we would not find anyone like the Jew. Notice I do not say the Israeli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that's shocking. Let me just say that. I, I do uh, really. Um appreciate the point that you made about anti-Israelism because, you know, I was just sort of going through it in my head. Is there anybody who is like anti-Ecuadorianism, anti-Lithuanianism, anti-Estonianism? I mean, these are sort of little bitty countries, you know, we never think about them ever. Right. And there's no such thing. It just or, doesn't make- <laughs> or let me just start or anti-Turkeyism. Yeah. Right. Turks have, have, have killed have killed far more Kurds than Israelis than than Jewish Israelis have killed Palestinians. They have destroyed. They have laid waste to Kurdish villages. They have persecuted them for decades and decades. They deny their 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 claim to nationhood. They they actually deny that they're a separate ethnic group within Turkey. They just say they're Turks. They deny their peoplehood. And Turks, for that matter, committed a genocide against Armenians. I'm not proposing that there be prejudice against Turks, mm-hmm. but you have quite analogous, indeed worse conduct on the part of Turkey toward Kurds 
measured by number of deaths and, and, and scorched earth policy and so on in the last several decades than, than, than Israel has conducted against Palestinians, and yet there's hardly a peep. Who, yeah. who would ever talk about anti-Turkeyism? Yeah, nobody would. <laughs> yeah, absolutely nobody would. So before I let you go, I want to talk about um, one episode that you discuss in the book that I think m- might be known to some of the listeners of this program, and that is the research that was done by, I, I may get these names wrong because I can't really remember very well, uh, Mersheimer and Walt about the so-called Jewish lobby. Can you talk a little bit about that in the framework that you've presented? One of the, well, perhaps the most pernicious, or maybe not perhaps, but there are other contenders, the most pernicious anti-Semitic tract written was uh, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a fabricated uh, supposed minute of the meeting of the international Jewish conspiracy, the, the Elders of Zion, in which they were hatching their plots for dominating the world, for for controlling media and economies, for subjugating peoples, for doing all kinds of harm. Uh, and this was in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, this book has been resuscitated powerfully in the world today, where versions of it are and, and, and stepchildren of it, that is, books based upon it and TV series based upon it, are, have been written and published and aired in China, Japan, and, of course, all over the Middle East uh, and also in all of European countries and so on. I mean, it's an international bestseller. And this idea that Jews are somehow behind the scenes manipulating the, what, what the anti-Semites would call the stupid goyim and getting them to do their bidding and getting them to harm other people is a very common one, which Mir Sharman and Walt in their book, The Israel Lobby, uh, uh, the Israel Lobby pick up upon and exploit, and in classical anti- in classically anti-Semitic way, uh, accuse Jews of uh, accuse Jews of betraying that is American Jews, uh, although they say it's not just Jews, other people can be part of the Israel Lobby, but when you look at it, it of course it comes down to Jews that accuse them of having betrayed uh, the United States by, by duping Bush and Cheney and Powell and Rumsfeld and the others into going into the Iraq War, and, of course, doing many other things against American national interests to support Israel, um, and thereby leading to the death of so many Americans, not to mention of Iraqis, and the impoverishment of the American Treasury, and so on and so forth. Um, it's a fantastical view of the world where, where you have treatments of the Iraq War where Jews, inconsequential Jews, play a larger role or mentioned more times than the architects of the war themselves. I mean, it's really amazing. You look at the index and you can look up um, minor, Jewish, uh, minor Jewish figures in the country and they were mentioned more times than some of the most powerful members of the administration. Um, and so it's, a, it's, a, it, it's an eerie and forbidding and complete view of reality in which Jews play this overweening and oversized role and do harm to Americans, essentially betray the country. Um, the, the, the so-called evidence for this doesn't exist. The treatment of, of the subject is thoroughly anti-Semitic. Uh, any student of anti-Semitism who's serious uh, would recognize this for but an updated and highly... Uh, academic-sounding version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Mm-hmm. I guess the thing that strikes me about it is it's a very funny question to ask, especially by people who are trained to be dispassionate and uh, rely on the evidence, because it is the prima facie explanation of any of that stuff is that it's a conspiracy theory and not really worth studying, except as a conspiracy theory. See what I'm saying? It would be like somebody saying, well, I'm going to do an intensive study of how uh, actually the Mossad was behind the uh, 9-11 attack. Because, I mean, it's absurd on the face of it. Right, it's absurd <laughs> on the face of it. And and yet when uh, professors at Harvard and Chicago, Gladry uh, Wall and Mearsheimer, put this forward, it, you know, and with all the seeming seriousness of their academic credentials and tone in the book, um, it is it is sadly taken seriously, at least by some. Um, but this is just one of the manifestations of um, 
global anti-Semitism, and, and I know our time is coming to an end, and there are many others that we haven't had time to discuss, but this is one of the interesting features uh, that is different from the past. Anti-Semitism has always had a domestic and international component to it. So uh, Polish or German Gentiles worried about the Poles, the Jews next door in Poland or in Germany, but also international Jews in medieval times, you know, and we've some kind of conspiracy. Um, and in modern times, but the weight has always been on the domestic Jews. You're always worried about the Jews in your neighborhood who may be poisoning your wells or next door or, <laughs> or cheating you in the economy or whatever. Uh, and in global anti-Semitism today, the balance has shifted to in the international dimension. So even if there's profound anti-Semitism in Europe and certainly in the Middle East, um, there are relatively few explicit charges. Hungary is an, ex is an exception to this, but by and large, there are explicit, few explicit charges about the Jews of a given country wreaking financial havoc or, or corrupting the politics or threatening the, the women, as it used to be said, or the purity of the nation and so on and so forth. Even though people believe these things, they don't say them in public, they're not part of the public discourse. And so the public discourse is focused on international, the international dimension, Jews in Israel and Jews in the United States, often used, described in the code word of the East Coast establishment. And so this balance has shifted. The, the only place, uh, interestingly and fittingly, where domestic Jews are, are subject to these kinds of charges, except for Hungary, which is an outlier for other reasons, is the United States itself, because it's here that the Jews are supposedly powerful, and, and you don't look to the international dimension, scene. you look here, and therefore we have Mirsharm and Walt and other uh, and others who are blaming the Jews of this country for for all of the things that they would like to roll back. Mm -hmm. um, so this is one of the features that makes global anti-Semitism, its international dimension, being emphasized quite different from previous forms of anti-Semitism. But there are also many others, which I go into in the book, mm -hmm. and which all in all create a new global complex where anti-Semitism is present everywhere. It's part of the substructure of prejudice of the world on the Internet and on satellite television and so on. So anybody who's prejudiced in any way can just latch onto it and say, ah, yes, I didn't realize that I should also think this about Jews mm -hmm. and incorporate it into their litany of dissatisfactions or their litany of hatreds or their litany of charges against other people. And so it's, it's a tremendous problem. It's taken a new form, and it's hard to know how, how, why anyone should be very optimistic about its future because it seems to be deepening and spreading right now and with no clear way to fight it except for on the Internet itself. Right, and that was my last question about the book, and that's, will it ever go away? Ever is a long time. <laughs> really who, knows, who knows what the world's going to look like when you have 3,000, let alone 2,100. I don't see that in the foreseeable future in the next several decades it's going to get any better. It, it, if the Middle East conflict, as it's called, were settled, if there were a genuine peace, as hard as that is to imagine what that would look like, it would certainly take some of the wind out of anti-Semitism. There's no doubt about that. But it's so deeply enmeshed in the substructure and superstructure of public culture at this point in so many countries and there, in which there is no anti-anti-Semitic discourse. There is no anti-anti-Semitic no anti discourse to, pre to present a powerfully articulated, institutionally supported, and, 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 and view of Jews that is also given the imprimatur of powerful and influential people. Mm -hmm. And so when you want... Eradicating prejudice, we know, is incredibly difficult. Yeah, even really when, is. even in your own community, even yeah. when you have people of goodwill talking to people who are prejudiced and explaining to them what's wrong with it and educating them, it's very difficult to eradicate. When when you talk about countries in which there is a post 100% anti-Semitism, where it's said on a regular basis that that there should be death to Israel, death to Jews, and this is chanted at religious institutions, and it's on the airwaves, and political leaders are saying these things, mm -hmm. and this is true in country in many countries, and in which and where there's an international coalition of to destroy Israel, to eliminate Israel, this, this has never existed in history, an international eliminationist coalition that exists today, mm -hmm. another singular feature of global anti-Semitism. And in, where in European countries, this demonology is so deeply rooted, it's hard to see how any time in the near future it's going to get better. And in fact, the trend right now is, is, is that it is getting much worse. And, uh, and so the devil never dies. The anti-Semitism likened to the devil 
this powerful force, unseen. This is the real devil of the Christianity spawn, anti-Semitism. Mm. Uh, unseen, incredibly powerful, morphing forms, seducing innocent people, that is, the people end up hating Jews, and leading them to think evil things and to do evil things. In this sense, anti-Semitism is really like a devil, and it is back. It's back in a new form. And the form is global anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's very powerfully stated, and the book is very compelling. Thanks for coming on the show and talking to us. We have a traditional final question on the uh, New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Uh, I have a bunch of projects underway, though I haven't settled upon what my next big book is. Uh, I've written a number of books, uh, which I've already just discussed, uh, in the area of Mass slaughter, eliminationism, prejudice of various kinds, and I may, I'm, I'm certainly interested in taking my hand in writing about racism in this country. I've mm-hmm. been thinking about and studying it for a long time, that is, particularly against African Americans, and, uh, and, but I have a bunch of other projects. The thing about writing a book, uh, as you know, is that it's such a big commitment. Uh, it's a commitment that of, uh, a couple of years, three yeah. years, five years, depending on what kind of book you're going to write. You can do other things with that, write articles and papers and, and whatnot. But before plunging into another big project, and the books I've written have by and large been big ones, uh, I want to make sure that I've, I want to spend the next several years married to it. And so this is one thing, racism in this country, the, the situation of African-Americans. Uh, but there I have other projects that are, that are underway, and, mm-hmm. and I'll just have to see how it pans out. I figure... That sometime in the next couple of months, I'll figure it all out. Well, that's why I gave up writing books, and I just talk to people about them oh. now. <laughs> oh, but Marshall, you know, you may the return of the repressed. Oh, I know. I, in a, in a, well, in a positive yeah, way. It's really not true that I've given up writing books. I have to tell you. Um. So that's anyway. So uh, today we've been talking to Daniel Jonah Goldhagen about his terrific book, "The Devil That uh, Never Dies." I should say it's a terrific book, but it's also a sobering book: "The Rise and Threat of Global Anti-Semitism." I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. We really appreciate everyone's support. But especially I want to thank Danny for being on the show. Thank you. Well, well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely.